Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. So placebos work. Does anyone else here find that weird? That they actually, anyone? I mean, think about what we're saying here. A sugar pill that should have no medical value actually works. This really started becoming an issue in like the mid uh, 20th century or so. They were doing all of these studies, and in order to test the validity of their results, they said, oh, we got to do these double blind studies with control groups. And so they started giving one group the real deal, whatever was under, whatever was being tested, and they started giving the other group just a placebo, these, these just sugar pills, something that actually would do nothing. And then as they were asking about the results, they started finding out that the control group was receiving benefit from the placebo, which is, of course, bizarre because they're not actually getting any real treatment. They actually went so far as to find out, and this has been studied in so many different areas, it's not just things like a little bit of pain management or a minor case of depression that can be helped by placebos. They actually found out conditions as different as acne or Crohn's disease or epilepsy or ED, ulcers, MS. All of these will respond positively in some way to placebos. They have a study that said even if we tell the participants that they're getting the placebo, it still has a positive benefit for them. Just think about that. Because they know that placebos can help them, they will actually have some sort of improvement. And I think all of this points to the incredible power of the mind, of what we think about. And I just find this super fascinating because it means that beliefs matter and that, in fact, that means hope matters. Now, I think that now this whole teaching series, by the way, we're just kicking off a seven-week series on the topic of hope. And there are a lot of researchers and psychologists, they talk about hope, but as they do talk about it and you read through it, it sounds a whole lot like they're talking about placebos, meaning it's helpful, it's even effective in some cases, but of course we know that hope is in the mind. Powerful, but that's really where it is. Sometimes, in fact, hope actually starts to seem more like a wish meaning we hope for some sort of good to come in the future. You know, I hope the medical test comes back clean. All right, yeah, we all hope that. I hope that my blind date goes well. Do people do blind dates anymore? It's been a long time since I was dating. But do people still? Anyway, I hope my blind date goes well. Maybe I hope my husband starts paying attention 
to me and the kids. I hope that my boss recognizes my contribution to the team and, and, and gives me a raise. I hope my wife start, stops nagging me. I don't have that problem at all. My wife isn't a nag. You know what I have? I have a dog that's a nag. So Pepper, every single day, nags me. So this is her jumping up on me. Just She jumps up all the time. She's like, rrr, rrr. she just whines. She's got this yippy sort of thing that she does. Here's her scowling because I didn't give her enough attention, just scolding me. I'm literally working on this message, and she's under the door, whining behind the door, pacing back and forth. And, and she has me so well trained that this is her looking away at the treat jar. Look, that's the treat jar. Then she looks at me. Then she barks. Then she looks back at the treat jar, look, watch, ready? One more, there it is. That's the treat jar, Dad, go get me a treat. This is what I live with. I hope my dog stops nagging me. We think of hope like a wish, but it isn't. You know, we don't even really necessarily believe that these things will happen. We just sort of hope that they do. Secular psychologists and others, they recognize the power of hope, but the way they talk about it is really fascinating. One I was reading said that hope is an emotion that springs from the heart, not the head. Which sounds really sweet at first, but it actually means that hope is irrational. That it, it, It's not something that makes sense in here. Just trust it. It's nonsensical. Others say that it's a belief that you will endure and overcome everything that life throws at you. Just hold on fast. You can do it. Dig down deep. That's kind of the encouragement they give. And I think, really? I mean, is that really what we're offering? Because lots of people end up broken by life's circumstances. There are plenty of people who have to bury a loved one that they really had hoped was going to pull through. And this idea that you can endure everything, it, it misses a whole huge category. What if, in fact, that God is fighting against you? And you might say, come on, he doesn't. He does, and we're going to see that throughout this. God will actually fight against what we desire for our greater good. What if he's, you're not going to pull through that. That's not how, you're not going to endure your way through, that's not, that's not hope, that's resistance against the Almighty. They might tell us that hope is the belief that a circumstance will get better. But, I mean, really, every circumstance is going to get better? Are we sure that that's the best that we can do when we talk about hope? You know, maybe it's a little bit of optimistic attitude mixed in with some placebo effect. Sprinkle it with a little luck, and it might just get you through. But to where? Where will it get you through to? Where will you actually land if the conversation about hope is devoid of God and his ultimate plans for you? Biblical hope is much more than the placebo effect. It's much more than making a wish. It's more than simply trusting in yourself. Think of biblical hope as a full assurance a strong confidence that God 
is going to do good to us in the future. It's not a merely internal thing. It is a confidence, a trust, a settled trust in him. That's biblical hope. It's not a cross your fingers kind of a thing. Just hope it all is going to work. But a confident expectation and a desire. William Carey, he said that we can expect great things from God. Is that where you are at this morning? That you can expect great things from God? Because that means that despite the circumstances and despite the outcomes, despite where this thing is going to end, we do know that in the end, God is working for our greatest good. If we commit ourselves and we commit our ways to him, biblical hope lets us press into even the most challenging of circumstances, the most heartbreaking of situations with a settled confidence in God and in our ultimate end. Now, this series is going to explore a whole lot of different facets of biblical hope. Each week, we're going to take kind of a different look at it, and we're going to be doing it all through an in-depth study of one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, the Book of Ruth. I know I say that a lot, my favorite book. This is really one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, the Book of Ruth. This morning, what I want to do is do a bit, because this is arguably one of the greatest narratives of the ancient world. These four short chapters in the Hebrew Scriptures considered to be one of the great narratives of the ancient world. Over the, uh, over the course of this series, I want to read big portions of this narrative to you so that you can just sort of sit and absorb and hear the power that is in this short little book. So we're starting in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons, Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her, two, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? 
Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then... Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who was that young woman belonged to? The overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? Listen, these were difficult days in the nation of Israel. Starts off in verse 1, it says, in the days the judges ruled. And this is an ominous statement because if you, know the, the, if you go back in the storyline from the book of Joshua in Judges, at the end of the book of Judges, we find all of this horrific things happening. This, the societal structures are collapsing upon themselves. People are being mistreated, murdered, abused, killed. It's just, it's this, it's a, it's a just, it reads like a, like a horror story at the end of Judges. All of these terrible things that are going on. So when it says that in the days of the judges, we know that as the judges themselves say, in the days, this is when Israel had no king. So everyone did as they saw fit. Largely, it was anarchy in the land. So they're living in that period. Now, they had been originally in Egypt as slaves. 
And the promised land was their great hope. There was this incredible exodus, and now they, they were, there was this conquest that happened under Joshua, and they were supposed to live at peace with their God as their king. And that was going to be a fantastic and beautiful story of them in the promised land. But that's not how it played out because of their hard hearts and their rebellion against God. Their social fiber began to disintegrate. And you could actually compare the book of Joshua and Judges to the book of Ruth in some really interesting ways. I think the writers have actually juxtaposed these books to do just that. Joshua and Judges are big books, long books, and they're, they're epic stories about these grand national projects and plans and wars and heroes and kings and all of this kind of stuff that's all big national level stuff going on. The, book, the books of Joshua and Judges also begin super optimistic about the conquest, but they end in bitter misery. They also begin with God taking a very active and vocal role in leading his people, but they end with God continually receding into the background. So you've got this big national kind of a book where God is fading, and then you get to the book of Ruth, and it's four short, short chapters. It's a tiny little book. And so even in its size, it shows that it's got a more microscopic kind of view because it isn't about national things. It's about one family. And it's about their misery. In fact, the book begins in misery. But that's not where it's going to end. We've just gotten the very first hint with Boaz as to how fantastic this book is going to turn out. And it's, getting, it's only going to get better and better until the very end. You see, it's like a reversal of what is going on in Joshua and Judges. But it's going on for one small family. It says that they lived in Moab. In those days, when the judges ruled, they went to Moab. And this is bad news as well for us. Because in, in Moab, we'll talk more about this next week, we have an enemy of Israel who is rightly despised because of how poorly and cruelly they have treated the Israelites over the years, refusing to give them any help. Why would you go to your enemy for help rather than staying in the promised land? Again, we'll talk more about that. But these were bad days. And you can just see it in the individual lives. You've got Elimelech. This guy, he, he leaves, he, he brings his family to a place he shouldn't have brought them. Now, there, he dies and his sons die, his two sons, which means his name is going to be snuffed out. His line is going to come to an end. In the ancient world, there is no greater humiliation than the end of the family line. Then you have Naomi, a widower, now losing her two sons. Orpah, she's, she's bugged out. She's largely alone, no property, no status, she will soon be in poverty, which in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a widow to fall destitute. If she had no one to care for her, even to become a prostitute to feed herself. This is a sad circumstance and a dangerous place for her to be. And then you have Ruth. Oh, my goodness. A foreign woman, a Moabitess. You notice they keep saying it over and over. They keep referencing she's from Moab. Oh, by the way, she's a Moabitess. Because a foreign woman in Israel during these days, this was a dangerous, dangerous time to be a woman, never mind a foreign woman in ancient Israel. And my goodness, what kind of hope could she have? 
in a land like that. These were troubled days. But God had not forgotten them. In chapter 2, verse 3, it's that little turn of phrase. It says, as it turned out. And I love this idea. As it turned out, Ruth just happened upon a field that belonged to a good man who just happened to be a near relative, who just happened to have the means of actually helping her and Naomi. As it turned out, she happens to find Boaz who can change hopelessness to hope. This is so important. I mean, as luck would have it, right when she's there, Boaz happens to show up. Well, that's, that's, a, well, that's fortunate. Sure glad that took place. See, there's a sovereignty thread that is woven throughout the whole of this book. And it's so easy for us to recognize when it's hindsight, but how difficult to see in those moments. Ruth is sitting there, and little does she know that this chance meeting with Boaz was going to change her future and fortune, as well as Naomi's, as well as the nation of Israel, undoing all of the heartache of the book of Judges and Ruth through the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, which, of course, way into the future, we find out is actually a global redemption because of the birth of Christ. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's where the story is heading. And it, it, it is so easy to be overwhelmed with our circumstances. You've got bills that can't be paid, and we got kids that can't be parented, and we got spouses that can't be changed, and medical results that bring despair, and we have jobs that carry all, like just little meaning and purpose, and expenses are outstripping income, and on and on and on we go, and we get to ask ourselves, where is God in all of it. Sure, he's involved with the big things. He's involved in the national scale. I'm sure he's wondering about what's going on in the Middle East and working on stuff in North Korea or maybe or maybe in Washington, though that seems unlikely. But like he's doing something out there. He's got big projects that he's working on. But is he really working on my projects? Does he really care about where I'm at? I think the book of Ruth is a promise to us that God cares. You see, as it turns out, he's already at work. He's already weaving the circumstances and the situations of your lives, and he's weaving them together in such a powerful way to draw you to him more fully and completely, to woo you into repentance, dependence on him, to establish you despite your circumstances that you can have a settled confidence, a hope, in him. As it turns out, God cares. And though it is often unseen, his hand is always at work. I think many of us struggle to trust that he is intimately and compassionately involved in the details of our lives. The so-called unimportant people. Really? All those situations that seem below God's pay grade, they aren't. They matter to God. You matter 
to God. I think what this teaches us is pretty neat because you look at their lives and you realize that both Ruth and Boaz, their small acts of kindness matter. And that's an encouragement, I think, to each and every one of us. The small acts matter. Every kindness, every action we take matters. And God can weave all of those small actions into something beautiful and redemptive. There are ripples of impact that we will never be able to see until many, many, many years, decades, maybe thousands of years in the future, if the book of Ruth is to be trusted, that's how the ripples of our lives can actually play out. You don't actually know the redemptive power of the situations you're in now and the circumstances you're facing now, the trials you're struggling with now. You don't actually know how your faithful trust in God will have an eternal impact in the lives of countless people. I think we drill down into this story for that reason. I think God gave us this story so that we can remember that he loves people, individuals, you and me. Jesus tells the story of the widow. She, he, he, she's at the temple, all these people dumping tons of money, and she drops two pennies, and he's like, that's the one that matters. He notices the widow dropping her two cents, her two copper coins into the, into the offering. She's like, he's like, that's the one. Remember, he said, if you even offer a cup of water to, to one of the least of these, you're offering it to me. You see, he understands, he sees, he's experienced what it is like to suffer in this world and these acts of kindness. Your small part matters because one mom raising one kid or because of one man showing kindness, fighting for justice, all of these things are woven together by God. And somehow, mysteriously, God takes these offerings and he supercharges them. And he just weaves them together to give us greater and more and real hope. So we have to recognize that our circumstances matter to God. You know, maybe you don't think that God's involved in your small problems, but he is. He is. You know, who really cares about one widow? I mean, there's billions of people on the planet. Who cares about one widow? Who cares about one foreigner who's facing a tough circumstance? Who cares about one foolish sinner who sabotaged and shipwrecked his family? Who cares? God does. God does. Listen, as Christians, we're not promised a heartache-free life. There's going to be suffering. There'll be heartache in this day, even for God's people. But as it turns out, God is with you. He's with you. And he's weaving all of these circumstances, all of these challenges, all of these joys into a tapestry of exquisite beauty that one day we will be able to see. So we've got to hold fast to God no matter what, and we have to have hope. We've got to have a settled confidence that God is working toward our greatest good. I'm going to do something we don't do often here this morning, but as a part of the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to what we're talking about here um, and some other things as well. So I'm going to ask the band to come up, and um, as we're 
looking through this text, as we're reading through it, one moment really captures my, my kind of my imagination. It's that moment where Orpah has decided to take Naomi's advice and to go home. And I know, I know Ruth's speech is spectacular, and we're going to look at it in future weeks, but there's this one picture. There's the picture of Ruth clinging to Naomi, clinging. She just won't let her go. It's not a matter of just saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm here uh, and I'm going to follow you. She's clinging to her mother-in-law. She's embracing her. And many times the scriptures talk about this exact thing for us. It talks about how we need to cling to our Savior, how we need to embrace him, how we need to just throw ourselves at him, hold on tight we're not always going to understand it all. We're not always going to be able to experience everything we want and know all the details and see the end before it actually takes place. But we can always cling to him. And I'm going to give you guys an opportunity here today to offer a prayer of repentance. Because I think there are folks here today that need to cling to Jesus. And you never have. You have no basis for true biblical hope because you've never actually clinged to Jesus. And so what I'm going to be doing now is I'm just going to ask you all to stand here. And I want you to think about where you're at in your relationship with God. I want you to ask, you know, if, if my life were to come to an end today, am I sure that I know that I would be with Jesus for all of eternity? Have I clung to him so tightly here in this life that I know that when my life ends, he will receive me into heaven? And if you have any doubts about that, I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to challenge you this morning to take that step, to cling to him. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for all of us here, asking God to soften our hearts. And then I'm going to ask if anybody would like to pray that prayer, you can just simply raise your hands, look up, whatever would do, um, and then I'll offer the prayer that you can pray with us. So I'm going to ask right now that everybody just pray. If you're a follower of Christ here, just pray for the people around you who, who are wondering whether or not this is their day to make this decision. And so, Father, you know where each and every person here is at. And sure, lots of folks here have already made a decision to follow Christ as Lord and Savior, but there are folks here who haven't. Maybe they've wondered. Maybe, they've, maybe this is the first time they're even hearing it. But Lord, we know that you desire for them to cling to you, to cling to Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior. When praying, Lord, that you would soften their hearts, that even now they would begin to hear you calling them. They would sense your call, your presence, the Spirit wooing them evermore. I'm asking, Lord, that they would leave the land of Moab and journey to the promised land, embracing you all along the way. If you're here this morning and you want this as your story, I'm asking you to raise your hand even where you're sitting right now. If you're sitting here and you're saying, I want to follow Christ, I want to, I want to be able to, to cling to him, I'm asking you to just raise your hand. And what we're going to do 
And so in a minute, we're just going to say a prayer together. It's really a prayer of commitment. That's great. I'm going to ask everybody to just read this prayer together. We'll read it out loud. And those of you who are making this as a decision for the very first time, pray that you'd listen so carefully to these words and apply them to your life and let them be your declaration that you're ready to cling to Jesus. Prayer comes up next. Let's say it all together. Heavenly Father, I am sorry for the things that I have done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong. Thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Please come into my life so I may be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.